We are in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 4, verses 31. We're covering a lot of text this morning, so we're not going to be able to hit on every single detail. We're going to be looking at the major points in this particular section. So before I jump into the text, has anyone ever been to the Adirondack Mountains? Right. So I was, I've been there back in 2014 and, and another time, I believe. But um, I was looking up some stuff on the, the internet, and there was something that came up about a, a particular mountain in the Adirondack Mountains, Mount Marcy. It says, Mount Marcy is a challenging mountain that should only be attempted by experienced hikers. Right, you got that? By experienced hikers. So like I said, this quote's taken off a travel website for those interested in exploring Lake Placid and the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. And back in 2014... I went camping with my two brothers-in-law, Andrew, whom most of you know, and his brother, Anthony. It was the first time I had ever gone camping. And it was the first time I'd ever really went on a hike. A little bit of context. I'm not exactly an athlete. While I played hockey growing up, I always said that my sport was the guitar. And back in 2014, I was probably carrying like about 50 extra pounds than I'm carrying right now. Um, and so I wasn't really in great physical shape. In other words, I wasn't, as this website described, an experienced hiker. Nevertheless, not really knowing what I was getting into, we began our hike. Marcy is about seven and a half miles to the summit, so 15 miles round trip. It sits at 5,344 feet in elevation and stands as the highest point in all of New York State. And so let me tell you a little bit about my experience. First of all, it was miserable. It was absolutely miserable. It was both emotionally and physically exhausting. The terrain was all rocks, which makes sense because it's a mountain. And so the impact of each step literally left me unable to walk for like two or three days. Obviously, I'm not in the best physical shape. It took us a lot longer than it should have, probably due to my hiking experience, and we finally got back to our campsite and out of the woods just as the sun was going down. So what's the point? While this hike was exhausting, there were these moments along the way that breathed life into us or brought us refreshment and relief from what we were experiencing. Being that we were... The, we were unexperienced hikers, we weren't exactly prepared for the amount of hours we'd be up on the mountain. So we didn't bring enough food, we didn't bring enough water. And so there were a number of hours where I was just dying of thirst and dying of hunger. And so amid the hunger and the thirst, both Andrew and I made a decision. Now, disclaimer, I do not recommend what we did. Do not recommend what we did. I was thirsty, like, like really thirsty. I hadn't had a drink in hours and there was a stream. And so if you know anything about hiking and camping, you shouldn't drink from streams, right? There's bacteria, like you need to filter it. But I was so thirsty, and it was so cold, and I just drank it. And I just like, just put it up to my lips. And, and praise the Lord, nothing happened to me. I didn't get sick. And so that was a moment of refreshment. There was another situation, and I asked Andrew if I can share this. There was a bear canister. If you know what a bear canister is, is you put food in there so bears don't get it, and you keep it away from your camp. And we found one along the way, and we just opened it. It didn't belong to us, but we opened it, and there were apple jacks in there. And so we ate the apple jacks because we were so hungry. Now, we were probably being a little dramatic, although I don't think I was being dramatic because I could barely 
move at this point. But we ate the Apple Jacks and we felt really good about ourselves. And there's probably someone out there telling a story about how they woke up from their camping trip and went to go get a bowl of Apple Jacks and it was all gone. And they're probably wondering who in the world would steal from a bear canister. Well, it's me and my brother-in-law. Another point of refreshment on our way down with about an hour left to our hike, my brother-in-law, Anthony, used his phone to put some music on. And so we sang Led Zeppelin and Metallica songs as we made our way through the woods. And finally, when we made it back to camp, we chugged multiple bottles of Gatorade that literally went down. like It was, it was a matter of seconds, and they were gone. And then I probably ate the most delicious hot dog I've ever had in my life because I was so so hungry. And so I bring this all up because this morning we're looking at a passage where we see God doing something similar for his people. That amid the trials of God's mission, and that's key, amid the trials of God's mission, he provides us with times of refreshing, pit stops along the way that sustain us so that we might faithfully make our way to the finish line. This morning, we will see how God cares for his kids, but in caring for them, he does not shield them from every bit of harm, but rather promises that he will be with us along the way. That's key. He will be with us along the way. See, that's the promise of the scripture. That's the big deal beginning all the way back in Genesis that carries us through throughout excuse me, the entire Bible, that God promises he will be with his people, that his presence will reside among his people. So with that, let's take a look at our Bibles this morning. Like I said, we are in Acts chapter 3. If you have your bulletins on the right side, on the inside cover, we're going to be just following a very simple outline, and we're going to be looking at our first portion. And Peter directed his gaze, chapter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So let me read that portion. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. We're going to stop there for a second. So a couple of observations as we make our way through this text. First thing, this scene takes place outside the temple. And it follows the events of Pentecost and the gathering of the early Christians. So why do I bring it up that this is happening outside the temple? Because if we know anything about the temple, and and, and if you're here and you're not sure about the temple, the temple was the place where God's presence resided. That's where people went in the Old Testament to meet with God. Another observation, Peter and John see this lame man, this beggar, and they, the words say, direct their gaze at him. They look at him. They make eye contact with this man sitting outside the gate of the temple. A couple of other observations in verses 1 through 10. The language used to describe this healing, our words, are the very same words used to describe the resurrection of Jesus. And there are also words borrowed from the prophet Isaiah, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. And finally, the last observation I want to make is that the work of the church 
is done before all the people. Everyone's watching. Everyone's watching. So a couple things, right? The temple. Now notice this beggar is at the gate of the temple. Like I said before, the temple is the place where God's presence resided. It was the place where people came to meet with God. But this event is taking place outside the temple. This healing, this incredible moment where this man once couldn't walk, he was lame from birth, it happens apart from the place where typically God's presence would reside. So New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he says it like this, and I believe I have a a slide for this quote. He says, this demonstration of the power of Jesus' name took place not in the temple, but outside the gate. See, God is on the move, not confined, not confined within the institution, breaking out into new worlds, leaving behind the shrine, which had become a place of worldly power and resistance to his purposes. In other words... The work of God is not something that can be confined by brick and mortar, but rather it is something that extends through his people. See, the temple is on the move. Why? Because we, the people of God in Christ, have become the very temple of God, the place where the presence of God resides so that where we go, Jesus goes. Where we go, Jesus goes. Right? That's why we say at Redeemer Fellowship all the time that we show the world what God is like because as people look at the church, they're catching a glimpse of God. And so that's what's happening here. That's what's being established in these early days of the church. That no longer is this brick-and-mortar temple the place where God resides, but rather he resides in his people, and his people are sent to scatter to the ends of the earth, as we will see as the book of Acts unfolds. And so the point is that God is on the move. God is on the move. But there's more going on here because it says that Peter and John, they looked at this man. He says, he says this in, in verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I don't want to camp out here for just a few minutes because the sort of ministry that we care about here at Redeemer Fellowship, this, this passage matters a great deal. This passage matters a great deal. See, there's something about verse 4 that might make some of us uncomfortable. Why? Well, one, this man was crippled. He was crippled from birth. Another thing that might make us uncomfortable, that this man was a beggar. And for most of us, the sight of someone begging for money, unable to walk, and, and if we start using our imaginations a bit, possibly unable to bathe himself, or take care of his physical appearance. Most of us don't want to be involved. And not because we're so just hateful people. That's not really why we don't want to be involved. Because most of us, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to engage something that is, that is so uncomfortable for us. But here we see Peter directing his gaze at this man. In fact, most of us are taught, taught, like if you're walking through Manhattan or if you're walking through a city where you might come across homeless people, most of us are taught to just kind of walk, 
Just kind of keep your eyes forward and walk. Don't get involved because we can't give money to everybody. We can't take care of everybody. So we just got to walk and we got to keep moving. But there's something interesting about what Peter does. He directs his gaze at this man, this untouchable, this have not, if you will. And so a couple of things that we need to understand about how Luke writes, because remember, Luke is the author of this particular book as he is the author of the gospel of Luke. And one thing we need to learn about Luke is that he cares deeply for the physical. He cares deeply for the physical. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, and I can go there. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says this. And he came to Nazareth, as was he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And so Jesus unrolls the scroll, and he finds the place where it's written, right? He didn't just randomly read, he actually found a particular place to read. And the thing that he read is this: the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed us to anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, God is here, Jesus is here to actually care for not just the spiritual needs of the people, but the physical needs of the people. Also, Luke has a slightly different nuance to Jesus' Beatitudes than Matthew does. See, in Luke's version, it says, blessed are the poor, while in Matthew's version, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It says, blessed are the hungry in Luke's version, while it says in Matthew's version, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, the question is not who's right and who's wrong. The question is both are right. We need to care for the physical needs of one another, and we need to care for the spiritual needs of one another. See, if we're just proclaiming the gospel and not actually caring for the brokenness of people, then we are a clanging gong. But see, if we're, not, if we're only caring for the physical but not caring for the spiritual, then guess what? People are going to hell, but maybe they have some money in their pockets. All right, so as, as followers of Jesus, we need to care about both these things. See, it's a both-end sort of gospel. In word and deed, we proclaim the good news of Jesus. So what's the point? Luke leans into the physical nature. He doesn't spiritualize things. And since the Bible seems to care about both, the spiritual and the physical, so too do we. And so a couple of questions that I think we should be wrestling with is to whom do we need to direct our gaze? To whom do we need to dignify and humanize those whom the world has cast aside? Whose hand do we need to touch, to lift up, or to walk with? Who are those people in our own lives? who we deem unworthy, who God is actually maybe speaking to us right now and saying, no, 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 they're made in my image. Don't you dare call them unworthy. And so another thing happens in this particular text. Notice the response of this man after he is healed. It says, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. See, Luke is a master storyteller. Once again, he triggers the memories of his readers by using language that draws us back to the Old Testament promises of God's kingdom. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, it reads this. 
Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And it is the same language being used in both of those passages. And the tongue of the mute sing, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So what's happening here? See, this healing, while it's a big deal and we're going to talk about it, it's not the point of the story. And I think often as we read through these New Testament accounts of of healing and casting out demons that we think like, oh man, that'd be so cool if we can just like get up and start healing people. And I'm not saying that healing doesn't happen. I think it does, but I don't think that's the point of this text. See, the point is to direct us towards the fact that new creation is in our midst. That's what Isaiah was talking about. So when these things start to happen in the New Testament, what the writers are trying to show us is that the new creation The kingdom of God has been inaugurated or began in the person and work of Jesus and continues in the work of the church. And one day it will be fully consummated when Jesus returns and we are in his presence for all eternity. But new creation is in our midst. That's what's happening here. That's what he's trying to articulate as he writes these words. New creation is here. The kingdom is here. And Jesus says it multiple times throughout the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is in our midst. And that's what he's getting at here. That's what he's getting at through this healing. See, see what, we, what we often get confused of when we're reading the scriptures is, is the sign and the thing signified. Let me explain that a little bit, right? There's a sign that takes place. And actually, the religious leaders in just a few moments are going to refer to this event, this healing, as a sign. Even though they're not particularly pleased with what's going on, they do recognize that it's a sign. And they say it's an undeniable sign. But often we place our attention on the sign. But see, let, let, me, let me use an example for you, right? If you're, if you're cruising down the parkway and you know you have to get off at exit 89, do you stop at the sign and say, I'm here? No, you keep going to the destination that that sign is directing you toward. And that's the point here. The healing is not the point. Because notice the language he uses to describe the healing. He raised him up. This man was raised up. These are all words about the resurrection. So the sign is the man being healed, but the resurrection of Jesus is the point. The sign is the man being healed, but the resurrection of Jesus is the point. And that's always the point for us as followers of Jesus. Our king is alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all of creation. And that is the point. And that's what gives us hope along the way. Right? If people are being healed all over the place, but we die and go to hell at the end of the day, it don't matter. But the reality is, is that as Jesus goes, so do we. So he died and rose again. Guess what? We will die and we will be risen on the last day. And that's the point. We get so hung up on, on, on the sign. We get so hung up on, on these cool magic tricks that we might think like, oh man, if I can have that power. We do. We have that power. It's called the Holy Spirit of God. And it's, and it's living in us. The Bible says that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, guess what? Where is it? In us. In us. So we cannot mistake the sign for the thing signified. We cannot make that mistake. 
We cannot major in the things that the Bible is not calling us to major in. Yes, healings are really cool. And yes, the signs of the Spirit are are fascinating. And and there are people in our church who who fall on either end of the spectrum. People who believe that the sign gifts still exist. People who believe that the sign gifts have ceased. But the point is, is that the sign gifts are pointing to someone. The point is, is that the church in Christ should be pointing to someone, namely Jesus. Namely, Jesus. And so the text goes on. After this healing, it says in in the last um, section of this particular, in verse 10, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. And then following verses 11 through 26, it goes like this. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. Keep that in your mind, men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant or exalted his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. I think that's interesting. You asked for a murderer, and then you killed the author of life. There's a little irony there. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send, his, send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoration." Restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. We're going to stop there and we're going to jump in for a second. But once again, as we've seen thus far in our study, through this initial movement of the Spirit following the reestablishment of the Twelve and Pentecost, God is reconstituting Israel. He's reconstituting Israel. Why? So that all the families of the earth will be blessed. So let's look, right? Verse 12, Peter asks two questions. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? Why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us? Right? Peter's asking kind of a rhetorical question. He's like, he's like, really? This is what you're impressed with? This is the thing that's getting you all excited? Do you recognize what we're in the midst of? Remember, he's talking to Israel at this point. It says in verse 12, men of Israel, people of Israel, you're impressed that a lame man got up to walk. Meanwhile, the man you killed, maybe like two or three months ago, he's risen from the dead, and that's what you're impressed with? Like, don't get me wrong. Healing a man who couldn't walk's a big deal, but raising someone from the dead is a much bigger deal, and you guys killed him. That's what he's getting at here. Again, the sign and the thing signified. Another thing comes up, which I think is super important. 
He says this in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the servant of our father. See, what he's doing here is he's drawing our attention back to Exodus chapter 3. And I want to turn there for just a moment. I want to read you this passage of what's going on. Right, this is following the burning bush ordeal where, where Moses is called by God to come to this bush that's on fire. And he's like, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. And here's what happens. I am the God of your father in chapter 3 of Exodus verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That sounds familiar. We just read those words in Acts chapter 3. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. This is going to get really interesting because we're going to see that once again, God hears the cry of his people and, and he hears the oppression of their taskmasters. Only this time, their taskmasters are coming from within. It's the religious leaders who are oppressing the people. Sure, Rome was oppressing the people, but it's the religious leaders of Israel who are really oppressing the people. The Lord, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and heard because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad, broad land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. Um, he says in verse 9, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And then Moses says this, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Right? Moses is scared. I think oftentimes many of us might be scared of what God is calling us to do. We might be frightened at what lies ahead, but check this out. He says this, but I will be with you. I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The point being is that God is offering a sign to Moses. There's a couple of signs here, right? There's the burning bush, which how can you forget, right? How can you forget a burning bush? If, if you've ever gone through any sort of ordeal, any sort of thing that was like out of the ordinary, you remember it. You can probably describe it to the T in an experience that you went through in your life. I'm sure if you experienced the burning bush, you'd be able to remember it. But then there's another part to that sign, the deliverance of the people. When you actually walk out of Egypt with your people, when you cross through that Red Sea, when you enter the land, you're going to remember this. And that's going to remind you, I got you. I'm with you. And we look back to these signs as those times of refreshing, which we're going to look at in just a second. Those, those little moments along the way where God nourishes our souls. Because let's be honest, the world we live in is not an easy thing. And to be a Christian in this world, to follow Jesus, to proclaim the good news of Christ in a world that hates Jesus is not an easy task, but what God promises is that he's with us, is, is that he's with us, and he gives us those signs along the way that point us back and forward. We look back to the resurrection, and we look forward to the day when Jesus will return. That's our deliverance story. That's our redemption story. 
The Exodus was Israel's redemption story. The Exodus was a signpost pointing to a greater redemption that we possess through Jesus. See, Peter is calling the people to look at the healing of this man, but to do so in a way that looks to the source of this healing, none other than the resurrected Christ, who is more than a sign that carries us along the way, but God himself, seated at the right hand of the Father, pouring forth his spirit to empower, refresh, and guide us as we embark on this mission to the ends of the earth. My former professor, Dr. Brandon Crow, he says it like this, if the greater is true, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then one should not be surprised at the lesser, that a man could be healed who was lame from birth. The latter is, to be sure, quite impressive, but it is not as impressive or consequential as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In other words, we shouldn't marvel at the sign. But rather, let's marvel at the, the one whom the sign is pointing to. He is going to sustain us, to refresh us along the way. I mean, look at me here in, in, chapter, in, chapter, um, in chapter 3, verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Right? He says in verse 19, repent therefore. Right? He, he gives them all this stuff, and then he says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that one, your sins may be blotted out, and two, that times, plural, of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And we get those signs of refreshing, those times of refreshing, until the singular time for restoration. Plural, times of refreshing, lead to the singular time of restoration. That's what we're experiencing as followers of Jesus. That's what he's doing for us along the way. I actually have a picture that I, I was sketching. Um, if you have it up there on the slide, Victoria. And so I sketched a picture, and then Tara was like, I can't read your sketch. So she made one for me. And so basically, this is how it works, right? We have the cross and the resurrection. And then we're living in this inaugurated kingdom of God. And then we have along the way... These times of refreshing, these moments along the way that, that give us grace, that give us strength, that, that push us along until we get to that point where we are fully glorified in the presence of God. Remember the water that I drank from the stream and the apple jacks that I ate from the bear canister. That wasn't the goal, but it sure got us to the goal. It sure got us down the mountain. Think of the, the sign, right? The sign that you see on the parkway, that's not the goal, but it got you to the goal. And so these times of refreshing get us to the point. And what's the point is that so that in their offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what we see happening in these early chapters of Acts is that God is reconstituting the people of Israel so that the mission to the ends of the earth might be completed. So he's dealing with Israel so that he can launch this mission to the ends of the earth. And us Gentiles who are sitting here in the room, who are now followers of Jesus, we're here because of what happened some 2,000 years ago. Because God did what he did through those early followers of Jesus. And that just keeps on rolling along until the consummation. And we have that same job. 
We have that same job here in 2021 to continue proclaiming the good news in both word and deed. Remember, Peter cared for the physical needs as well as the spiritual. We have that same job to proclaim the good news in both word and deed until the restoration of all things. And, and the beautiful thing, and you've probably noticed this, right? Like, you know, anyone who's ever gone on a mission trip, I, I always hear this, right? Whenever people come back from mission trips, man, they blessed me more than I blessed them. How many of you experienced that? Right? right? I don't even know if that's entirely true, but we feel that. We feel that, right? Like, like if you went somewhere and you built someone a house who didn't have a house, I'm sure that you weren't blessed more than they were blessed because they didn't have a house and now they have a house. But you know what God does? You know what God does? He just, he lavishes grace on us. He lavishes grace and he actually gives us, in the midst of the mission, times of refreshing. Times of refreshing. Little signposts that lead us along the way that point us back to the resurrection and fix our eyes forward on the second coming of Jesus. All these things, these little moments, they, they, they stay with us and we can remember them. And I'm sure as I mentioned that word, have you ever been on a mission trip and felt you've been blessed more than you were able to bless? You probably remember specific things that you did. And you probably had a little sense of joy that erupted in you because of what you remembered. Why? Because God gives us those times of refreshing along the way until we arrive in his presence one day. And so the text continues, and, and I know I'm a little long today. We had a lot of text, but I'm, we're not going to be too long. I'm going to try and finish up soon. The boldness of the Spirit, chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. It says this, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, religious leaders, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so what did they do? They arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's a lot of people. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? I love Peter's response. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Right? If you're mad at me, you got the wrong guy. Actually, the one who you should be mad at is the one you killed. And guess what? You killed him? He's alive and well, right? I think back to Obi-Wan Kenobi. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That's what happened here with Jesus. Peter's looking at him. You're mad at me? No, no, no. The guy you killed, he's the one who raised this man up from the dead. He's the guy. He is the one. This Jesus is the stone, quoting Psalm 118, that was rejected by you, the builders, 
The builders being the religious leaders. You guys rejected him. You kept him from the people. You oppressed them like Pharaoh oppressed my people. But he's become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You're mad at the wrong guy. That's what's going on here. Again, the point of the healing is to direct our gaze to Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead. He is the one whom we should fix our eyes upon. He is the one who gives us times of refreshing along the way. He's the one that keeps us on mission. He's the one who sustains us through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the fellowship of the saints. Remember what what Pete preached last week as he preached on Acts 2, 42 through 47, and Acts 4, 32 through 37. Both those stories bookend what we're looking at this morning. Meaning that we draw our strength from the spirit-filled community of faith. We draw our strength from the preaching and teaching of God's word. We draw our strength from fellowship. We draw our strength from breaking bread with one another, which we're about to do in a few minutes. And there's a reason why those two stories bookend this story. Because, again, those are times of refreshing. As we gather together as the people of God, as we partake of the Holy Supper, these are times of refreshing that bring us along the path toward glory. When we give and provide for those who are in need among us and those who are are, are looking in on this thing we call church, Those are times of refreshing. Remember, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All of those things that are described in both of those passages in Acts 2 and Acts 4 are showing the saints being refreshed, being encouraged. And it's not just them sitting back and doing nothing. They're singing praises to God. They're praying. They're giving to the needs of the church. They're sacrificing their own wallets for the sake of those in need. And God blesses them for it. God blesses them for it because all of that points back to what? The resurrection of Jesus. That's the point. That's the point of this whole thing. It's the central tenet of the gospel. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Paul says, we are wasting our time. We're the most to be pitied. If Jesus isn't alive and well, then we should go out and eat, drink, and be merry because it doesn't matter. But he is alive, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne. And and I am never going to grow tired of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Because even as we entitled this sermon series, Faithful Witnesses, faithful witnesses of what? The resurrection of Jesus. He's alive. He's alive. It's a beautiful story. And so Peter gives his, his speech, and then there's a response from from the religious leaders. And he says this in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this man? For that a notable sign has been performed through them. 
and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right, to, right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so, uh, like, a note on civil disobedience, because, right, there's a lot of that going on in the news right now. Um, I think it's pretty basic for Christians. I think we actually overcomplicate things. Obedience to those in authority is something we're called to do in the Scriptures, period. However, when those in authority come into conflict with what God has commanded, we submit to the higher authority. It's that simple. It's that simple. And we have to get that through our heads. We have, to, we have to allow that to just kind of be like, okay, yeah. Whether we like it or not, if they're not asking us to disobey God, then we just say, okay. And, and I don't want to spend too much time on that because I don't think that's the point of the passage. It, it closes with this prayer for boldness. When they were released in verse 23, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. I love this. They went back to their people, right? They went back to their church. They went back to their family, right? That's what this is. It's a family, right? That's why we announced, you know, Julie's parents' 50th anniversary because we're a family, right? These things matter to us. And so when things happen, we go back to our family. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appoint, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And look what happens. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. And so the point here is that what we're looking at is they come back and they pray together. And, and an interesting thing, they quote this psalm, why did the Gentiles rage? Who, who are they? They're talking about the Jewish religious leaders, and they are lumping them in with the Gentiles. This is a pretty significant moment. See, the, the leaders of Israel are actually the enemies of God. Think about that. The leaders of Israel in this context are actually the enemies of God. But what I think is so incredibly, it's just so cool about this passage is that God shows up. He shows up. They pray. They just had a, a really difficult time, right? Think about it. You're standing before the same people who, who got your Lord killed, and you're probably thinking like, okay, I guess this is it. I guess this is the time where we die too. And so they're probably nervous. Now, they had boldness, of course, but, but humanity is what it is. And, 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 if, and if you think death is in front of you, you're probably a little bit scared. But then God rescues them from that moment. And he brings them back to their people. They pray, 
and then God shows up. The whole place shakes, which is a sign of God residing with his people. We see shaking and fire and all sorts of things happen when God descends upon a place. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Again, what is God doing? He's letting them know, I am with you. I am with you. Just like he let Moses know, I am with you. And guys, that's, that's the point. That's what we're getting at this morning. And, and there's a lot of stuff in that passage. And, and you can probably spend weeks on that passage alone. But the main point is that God resides with his people. He provides us with those times of refreshing along the way so that we can continue in this mission that he's called us to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus in both word and deed. So as we come to the table this morning, it is so important that we understand that this ritual that we are about to participate in is at least a memorial, but it's so much more. See, these ordinary elements, the bread and the juice, when consumed in faith, are some of the means by which God strengthens his church. Moments like these, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, are times of refreshing, a way for us to experience the grace of God. See, there's nothing special about the elements themselves. But God promises that he will be with us at this table, in this gathering, through the preaching of his word and the prayers and songs of the saints. He is present to fill us and sustain us as we take the message of the resurrection to the ends of Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for just the wonder of your son, Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, Lord God, the good news that that your son, Jesus, is king, that he's seated on his throne. Lord, that we possess, as we are brought into union with your son, Jesus, we possess the Holy Spirit the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead. Thank you for that, Father. I pray that you would continue to refresh our church, Lord God. Continue to bring us those times of refreshing along the way. This has been a year of difficulty, Lord, but we have seen times of refreshing along the way. You've met with us, whether it was virtually, whether it was in person, whether it was out in the field, under the tent, over the summer. You met with your people. You carried us along the way. Thank you so much for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Lord, I've never, I've never felt that so much until recently. Lord, your grace, how you have cared for your people, your faithfulness. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.